0: The Ohio Connection features depictions of violence and graphic language that may not be suitable for young audiences. Listener caution is advised. Welcome to The Ohio Connection. The Ohio Connection is a theory that Ohio can find itself in the middle of society and culture wherever you look. One thing popular in culture right now is true crime, so we set out to find The Ohio Connection within. Some cases you will know, as they are now notorious. Others will be new to you. So join us as we explore this dark phenomenon. I'm your host, Tiffany Gill, and this is The Ohio Connection. Today, our show finds its connection to Ohio by starting in a small town called East Lake. East Lake is a typical small town and gets its name from its proximity to the border of Lake Erie. This town is a suburb of Cleveland, located about 20 miles to the south, and actually has a quite lower than average crime rate in comparison. The violent crime rate of this little town is a staggering 86.14% lower than the national average. Based on the last statistics collected from the years 2007 to 2017, there were only seven murders. But in 1943, a man would be born there that would go on to be an infamous abductor, torturer, and killer. This man's name was Gary Heidnick. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, in Eastlake, Ohio, to parents Michael and Ellen Heidnick. A younger brother named Terry would follow shortly after. His parents would divorce when Gary was barely three years old. During divorce proceedings, Michael accused Ellen as being both an alcoholic and having a violent personality. However, Gary and Terry would still go live with their mother, who was quickly remarried. After about four years of living with his mother, Gary and Terry decided to move in with their father, who at this point had also remarried. The years with his father proved no easier on Gary than the time with his mother. Gary suffered from urinary incontinence, commonly known as bedwetting, in children. I know, I know, I can hear my true crime aficionado screaming about the McDonald Triad right now. For those who don't know, the McDonald Triad is a set of three factors, arson, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals. It has been suggested, if all three or any combination of these two indicators are present together, that this is predictive of or associated with later violent tendencies, particularly with relation to serial offenses. His father Michael was a tough man and was reported to be emotionally and physically abusive to Gary. Michael did not understand his child's extended bedwetting. In a misguided or maybe intentionally mean effort to curb the behavior, he would often humiliate Gary for his bedwetting. He would force Gary to hand him his bedsheets from the window in his bedroom, exposing his embarrassing problem to the neighborhood. Gary also fell from a tree when he was a child, smashing his skull and suffering a misshapen cranium. Some adults later recalled his behavior and moods changing after this severe accident. Whether it affected his personality or not, in school, he was a loner and a nervous kid. He had trouble making eye contact and kids would make fun of his head shape caused by the fall, calling him football head. By the time Gary had reached the 8th grade, he had developed two main obsessions, making money and becoming an army officer. So intense was the latter ambition that his father made arrangements for him to attend the prestigious Staunton Military Academy in Virginia. Gary lasted at the academy for two years, excelled academically, and was rated highly by many of the school's instructors. His IQ would also be tested while there, and he would achieve a score of 130 to 148, which is in the very exceptional range. Depending on which scale is used, This score reflects genius or near-genius classification. Even with that achievement, he decided to depart from the school suddenly in his junior year and returned home to live with his father. In 1959, he would drop out of high school altogether. With encouragement from his father and still finding his best fit in the rigid environment he had in military school, he decided to join the military. During his basic training, one of the sergeants is quoted as saying that Gary was an excellent student. After completing his training, he applied for several positions as a specialist, including military police, but was rejected. He was then sent to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a physician. In this training, he would excel, so much so that in 1962, he was transferred to Germany where he served at the 46th Army Surgical Hospital. After a couple of weeks there, he got his certification. He'd finally put his considerable intelligence to work, and he excelled within the structure that the military provided. But just when everything seemed to be going smoothly, Gary began to feel unwell. He began to exhibit certain signs of mental disorder. In August of nineteen sixty-two, Heinick reported being ill. He complained of severe headaches, dizziness blurred vision, and nausea. A hospital neurologist diagnosed him with gastroenteritis, but he noticed that it also showed unusual psychological features. At the time, he prescribed stelazine, a strong tranquilizer that was prescribed to people suffering from hallucinations. In October of that same year, he was transferred to a military hospital in Philadelphia, where he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. Thus, he was licensed with honors and granted a pension for mental incapacity. In 1964, Heinrich started taking nursing classes in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, completing them a year later and receiving an internship at Philadelphia General Hospital. After the internship, he worked at a VA psych hospital for a time before being fired for rude behavior toward patients. In 1967, he purchased a three-story house and started frequenting the Ellen Institute, a house for the developmentally disabled. For the next few years, Gary spent most of his time in and out of psychiatric hospitals, but this time he was the patient. He was prone to extreme bouts of depression with over 13 suicide attempts. In fact, depression ran in the Heidnick family. In 1970, Gary's mother Ellen committed suicide by drinking mercuric chloride. Additionally, Gary and his little brother Terry also attempted suicide several times and spent some of their adult life in institutions. But the intermittent institutionalization didn't keep Gary down. Gary Heinick would start the United Church of the Ministers of God in 1971 in Philadelphia with just five followers and a $1,500 investment. With skillful manipulation and a knack for educating himself in whatever he put his mind to, he grew the church to 50 members, and through investing, as the church got bigger, he reaped the rewards. He invested in Playboy magazine and other fast-growing stocks of the time. Soon, he had amassed over a half million dollars and had himself a Rolls-Royce. However, that's not to say this time period of expansion was without trouble. In 1976, he sold his house and bought another to move in with his girlfriend, Anginette Davidson, who was mentally disabled with an IQ of only 48. But Anginette was more than just a sexual conquest for Gary. She was his official transition into the crimes that would forever define him. In 1978, Gary Heinick signed his girlfriend's sister out of the Minstal Institution where she lived on a day pass. Alberta Davidson was brought to her sister's home where she was kept for 10 days and repeatedly raped, sodomized, and tortured. When police finally found her, she was bloodied and terrified, hiding in the basement coal bin. Gary was charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. But his original sentence was overturned on appeal, and Heidnick spent only three years of his incarceration in mental institutions, prior to being released in April of 1983 under the Supervision of a state sanctioned mental health program In 1984 he purchased his third house and began advertising his church again and on the following year heinick married a mail order bride betty disto from the philippines however the marriage was short-lived after disto found that heinick had affairs with three other women in addition he was very violent assaulting her, raping her, and forcing her to watch him have sex with other women on multiple occasions. She would become pregnant and flee back to the Philippines for the safety of her and her child. Unbeknownst to Heinick, until his ex-wife demanded child support, Disto had given birth to his son, Jesse John Disto, after the divorce. Fast forward to 1986. His wife has left him His church or cult, whichever you prefer, is going well. Gary is left with his own thoughts, and what does this master manipulator with depraved proclivities daydream about? He dreams of having sex slaves in his very own private harem of women. Gary was obsessed with women of color, and on November 26, 1986, daydreams would no longer suffice. He decided to hire a prostitute. Heidnick drove around Philly until he spotted Josefina Rivera. For Josefina Rivera, November 26, 1986, was a night that she will never forget. Angry after a fight with her boyfriend, she left their apartment in a slum area north of Philadelphia to go to work. For Josefina, work consisted of walking the streets in search of a willing John who would be prepared to pay for her sexual favors usually just a brief liaison in the back of a car or a sleazy motel room. All she needed was a few quick tricks so she could buy Thanksgiving dinner for her family. Braving rain and bitter cold, she walked back and forth, looking anxiously at each passing car. With the temperature dropping and the traffic light, Josephina had almost convinced herself to quit for the night when a car drove slowly past her and stopped. As she moved towards it, she saw that it was a silver and white Cadillac Coupe de Ville. She moved closer as the driver's window slid down and a bearded man asked if she was hustling. She told him she was, and after a brief discussion concerning payment, she got into the car. The man introduced himself only as Gary and told her he had to make a stop before they got down to business. Josephina, giving her name as Nicole, Agreed, and shortly after they pulled into a nearby McDonald's. She followed him as he went inside and bought coffee, and sat with him as he drank it. With a quick appraisal born from experience, Josephina studied her trick. He was white, his face framed by a neatly trimmed beard below cold blue, penetrating eyes. Although he wore an expensive watch and jewelry and drove a luxury car, she noticed that his clothes were cheap and soiled. Trying to keep conversation going, she asked again his name. Gary, he repeated. Several minutes later, he finished his coffee and told her they were leaving. When she asked where they were going, he told her they were going to his house. After leaving the restaurant, Gary drove through the streets until he turned onto North Marshall Street and pulled into the driveway of number 3520, his home. As he pulled into the dilapidated garage, Rivera couldn't help but notice another car parked in front of them. It was a 1971 Rolls Royce. For an unkempt man living in a bad neighborhood, he certainly had good taste in cars. After having Rivera perform the activities she was hired for, she began to get dressed. Gary snuck up behind her and began to choke her. Josefina, thinking he was a killer, began to beg for her life, and he released his grip. But then, he pulled her arms behind her and attached a set of handcuffs to her wrist. Gary then pushed her ahead of him and guided her back down the stairs to the kitchen, where another door led to a basement. The room was cold and damp, and Rivera, dressed only in a blouse, began to shiver uncontrollably. When she complained, Gary told her to be quiet and threatened to hit her with a piece of wood if she did not comply. After she had quieted down, he dragged her to a soiled mattress, attached metal clamps to her ankles, and connected them to one end of a chain. He then applied superglue to the clamps and dried them with a nearby hairdryer. The other end he fastened around a large pipe that was attached to the ceiling. When he had finished, he told her to sit up and promptly laid his head in her lap and went to sleep. Having drifted off in the night, Josephina awoke and found she was alone. With the feeble daylight that shone through a small, boarded-up window, she was able to view her surroundings. The basement was small, with concrete floor and walls. Apart from the mattress, the only other items in the room were a chest freezer, a washer-dryer, and a worn pool table. In the center of the room, a small area of concrete had been removed and a shallow pit had been dug into the ground underneath. While she wondered if she would end up in such a hole, she remembered that it was Thanksgiving and the pain of hunger would soon join her thoughts. A short time later, Gary appeared and offered her an egg sandwich and a glass of juice. She was about to take it when she began to worry that it might be drugged or even poisoned. Fighting her pangs of hunger, she refused it. Gary then took the food away, returned with digging implements, and set to work to widen and deepen the hole. As she watched him working, he told her that all he ever wanted was a large family. To that end, he had already fathered four children to four separate women, but had lost contact with them. He didn't go into detail as to why. He told Josephina that his plan was to get ten women and get all of them pregnant so he could raise his family. As Rivera contemplated what his plan entailed, Gary approached her and demanded sex. Afterwards, he went back upstairs. Left alone a second time, Josefina managed to loosen one of the ankle clamps, and after prying one of the wooden boards loose from the window, stretched the chains to its full length and lifted herself halfway out the window. Unable to escape fully, she began to scream hoping that a neighbor or a passerby would hear her and come to her aid. Unfortunately, that neighborhood was used to screaming, and her calls went unheeded by everyone except Gary. Hearing her screams, he pulled her back inside the basement and beat her with a stick until she quieted down. Then, pushing her down into the tiny hole in the floor, he forced her head onto her chest and covered her with a piece of plywood and stacked heavy weights on top of it. To make sure that her screams didn't attract any outside attention, he set up a radio and tuned it to a hard rock station at maximum volume and left. As she lay half-naked and cramped up in the freezing earth, Josefina Rivera struggled to breathe and waited to die. Listening to the radio news, she mentally ticked off each hour, wondering when he would come for her. On December 3, 1986, In what seemed to Josephina to be only a few days, but was actually about a week following her abduction, she heard from the confines of the pit, even with the radio on, the sound of a woman complaining and chains being dragged across the floor. A short time later, Rivera's heart leaped as the board was lifted and Gary yanked her up from the pit. Unable to stand properly from severe cramping, she looked up and saw another young black woman naked except for a blouse and chained to a pipe in the ceiling in the same manner as she had been the first night. Josephina stared at the woman who seemed to be completely oblivious to what was happening to her. Gary later introduced the girl as Sandy before leaving them alone. As Sandy began to speak, Josephina began to understand why the new arrival seemed so detached. She was clearly intellectually disabled. She told Rivera that her real name was Sandra Lindsay, and she had been a friend of Gary's for several years since they had met at the Elwin Institute, a local hospital for the mentally and physically handicapped. She described Gary as a good friend who always looked after her. In a voice void of emotion, she described how she had often had sex with Gary and his friend Tony. She explained that she had once been pregnant, presumably the baby being Gary's or Tony's, but that she had had an abortion as she was afraid of being a mother. When Gary learned what she had done, he flew into a rage and told her that she was evil and offered her a $1,000 to have his baby. As she finished her story, Sandy dissolved into tears as she began to realize her predicament. In an attempt to calm her, Josephina told her about herself, describing how, at 25, she had three children that didn't live with her and had been walking the streets since she was a teenager. An hour later, Gary Heidnick returned with dinner, which consisted of dry crackers and bottled water. He then left and suggested that the girls get acquainted. Two hours later, he returned and resumed his work on enlarging the pit. After working on the pit a while, he stopped and had sex with both women and then left again. The following morning, he seemed to be in a joyous mood and brought them a breakfast of warm oatmeal. While they were eating breakfast, they heard someone knocking on the front door. Gary went to investigate and returned to tell Sandy that her sister and two cousins had come looking for her, but had gone away assuming no one was home. He later forced Sandy to write a note to her mother telling her that she had gone away and would call later. He told the woman that he would post the letter from New York so her mother would think that Sandy had ran away. Although Sandy didn't seem to understand the implication of the note, The streetwise Josephina was painfully aware of Gary's real intentions, to keep them prisoner indefinitely. As the days dragged into weeks, Heinrich's behavior became increasingly bizarre. He would feed them sporadically and kept them semi-naked so that he could indulge his sexual appetite whenever he felt like it, which was often. When he was absent, they would huddle together for warmth and waited in fear for his return. On occasion, they would try calling for help, which resulted in severe beatings, which in turn caused them to cry even louder. Any deviation from his rules was punished by further beatings or a period of imprisonment in the dreaded hole. Another form of punishment he devised was to attach the girls to an overhead beam by one arm and leave them suspended for hours on end. While Gary was developing his skills as a torturer, Sandra Lindsay's mother was actively searching for her. The Monday after Sandra supposedly left home, she was reported missing to the police. While making the report, Mrs. Lindsay told an officer that she believed her daughter was being held against her will by a man she knew only as Gary, who lived at 3520 North Marshall Street. She gave the officer all the information she had, including a phone number and a mutual friend of Gary's and Sandra named Tony Brown but was unable to furnish a last name for Gary. The officer tried calling the number and even went to the house, but got no response. Later, when Mrs. Lindsay showed him the letter she had received, followed by a Christmas card containing $5, the officer started to believe that Sandra Lindsay was just one more runaway. As a last resort, the officer went looking for Heinick's friend, Tony Brown. He eventually found him at a McDonald's restaurant in West Philadelphia that Sandy was known to frequent. He asked Tony, who was also intellectually disabled, if he knew the whereabouts of Sandra Lindsay. No, was the simple reply. He then asked him for Gary's last name, but Tony misspelled it, leading the officer to conduct a search for the wrong man and to eventually drop the inquiry when his search yielded no results. At the time, the officer had no way of knowing just how close he had come to subverting four more abductions. Three days before Christmas, like many residents of Philadelphia, Gary went out shopping, but it wasn't presents he was looking for. Looking to once again expand his growing harem, he cruised the streets looking for a perfect addition. As he turned onto Lay Street, he found her. An African-American 19-year-old, Lisa Thomas was on her way to a girlfriend's house when Gary pulled up beside her in his Cadillac. He leaned out of the window and made a suggestive comment, but she got angry and told him she wasn't some hooker. Gary quickly apologized and offered her a ride instead. Eased by the change in his behavior and his impressive car, she accepted. Gary asked where she was going, and she told him she had to go around the corner to her girlfriend's house to pick up something. He drove her there and waited while she went inside. When she returned, he suggested that they go somewhere to eat, and when she agreed, he drove to a local restaurant. While they were eating, he asked her to go to Atlantic City with him the next day. While they were eating, he asked her to go to Atlantic City with him the next day, but she complained that she had nothing to wear. Gary then produced a $50 bill, telling her that they would go to a nearby Sears store to buy her some clothes. Lisa was infatuated, thinking, who is this man? After shopping for a bit and buying some clothes, Gary took her back to his home on Marshall Street, gave her a glass of wine, and put on a movie. While watching the movie, Lisa became drowsy from the combined effects of the wine and allergy medicine she was taking and eventually laid down on the couch and fell asleep. A few hours later, she woke to find that Gary was undressing her. Before she had time to clear her head, she was being carried up to his bedroom where he proceeded to force himself on her. After Gary had satisfied himself, Lisa started to get dressed and asked him to take her back to her girlfriend's house. Without a word, Gary went to his tried and perfected method and grabbed her by the throat and began choking her until she complied with his demands. Gary handcuffed her and took her down to the basement, telling her that he was going to introduce her to his two friends. As soon as they reached the basement, he removed the plywood sheet from the floor and lifted Josephina and Sandra from the pit. He made introductions and then went upstairs to make sandwiches for the women. He told them that they would not eat until he had taught Lisa some rules, then forced her to fillet him and chained her up like the others. When he had gone, the women ate and talked among themselves. The one thing they came to agree upon was that they were being held by a very dangerous man. Ten days later, Gary returned from one of his trips with another black woman named Deborah Dudley, who at 23 was not about to allow Gary to control her without a fight. From the time he had chained her with the others, she began questioning his authority at every opportunity. This would generally earn her nothing more than one of Gary's signature beatings. Her arrival also began to create tension among the women. The room would start to become divided, because whenever she disobeyed, Gary would punish all of them, telling the others, if you helped make her follow the rules, I wouldn't have to do this. Beatings became a regular event. Gary would often appoint one of the girls to be in charge while he was out. When he would return, he'd expect that person to tell him if the others had misbehaved. If they had, Gary would order the girl in charge to beat the others accordingly. If there was no incidents to report, or if the beatings inflicted were not up to his standards, he would beat them all. During this time, whether it be street smarts or Stockholm Syndrome, Josephina started to win his confidence by displaying a level of loyalty and obedience that had Gary convinced that she actually enjoyed being one of his wives. His sexual appetite also changed with the arrival of Deborah. Instead of having intercourse with all of them daily, he would force them to have sex with each other while he watched. While personal hygiene did not seem to be a priority for Gary, listening to Josephine, he provided a portable toilet for his captives. And baby wipes to wash their bodies. Eventually, he allowed the girls to have a bath, after which he would force them to have sex. The amount and type of food that he provided seemed to change according to his mood. Some days he would give the girls only bread and water, the next day, it might be stale hot dogs or a peanut butter sandwich. One day, while on a reprieve, the girls were allowed to watch TV and saw a commercial for dog food. One of the girls said, that looks good enough to eat. This sent Gary into a rage, believing he had taken care of them fairly well. He said, you like the looks of dog food? Then you'll get dog food. It soon became a regular dinner for the girls. On January 18th, Gary went out again and returned with yet another girl. He had picked up Jacqueline Askins, a tiny 18-year-old prostitute, on the north side of the city, and brought her back to the house. As before, he had sex with her and dragged her to the basement, but when it came time for the inaugural chaining, he found that his shackles were too big for her tiny ankles and had to use handcuffs instead. Later that day, he bought everyone Chinese food and, as an added surprise, a bottle of champagne. The occasion? It was the 26th birthday of the woman that was fast becoming his favorite. Josephina Rivera. Josephina would later say that Gary was in such a good mood because he believed she and Sandra Lindsay had become pregnant with his children, but this wasn't the case as it would turn out. In early February of 1987, Gary found reason to punish Sandra Lindsay when he caught her trying to move the plywood that covered the pit. The punishment was severe. Gary forced her to hang from a roof beam by a single handcuff attached to her wrist for several days. During this time, her condition deteriorated, and she refused to eat. Still believing her to be pregnant, Gary tried to force-feed her pieces of bread. Towards the end of the week, even though she was vomiting and was running a high fever, Gary continued to force-feed her, often jamming food into her mouth and holding her mouth shut until she swallowed. The next day, Sandra lost consciousness. When Gary couldn't wake her up, he became angry and unlocked the handcuffs, dropping her to the ground. He told the others that she was faking and kicked her into the pit and left her there while he served up ice cream for everybody and then left. When he returned to the basement, he lifted Sandra out of the pit and checked her pulse. She was dead. He told the girls she probably choked while trying to trick him. Gary carried Sandra's body upstairs with him. A little bit later that day, the girls were horrified when they heard the distinct sound of a power saw. Their horror turned to revulsion when one of Gary's dogs walked into the basement carrying a long, meaty bone and proceeded to tear it apart in front of the terrified girls. A few hours later, Deborah Dudley began to cause trouble again, so Gary unchained her and took her upstairs. When the two returned, Deborah was unusually quiet, and her feisty nature seemed to be crushed. After Gary left, the others asked her what had happened. Stammering with fear, she told them that Gary had taken her into the kitchen and showed her a pot he had on the stove. Inside the pot was Sandra Lindsay's head. He then opened the oven and showed her part of Sandra's ribcage that he was roasting. Opening the fridge, he pointed to an arm and other body parts that he had wrapped in plastic and told her that if she didn't start obeying him, she would be next. Investigators would later reveal that Gary dismembered her and the body parts that Deborah saw in the fridge had been ground up using a food processor that he had specially purchased for the task. It was reported he fed it to his dogs and the captives, mixed with dog food. In the days following Sandra's death, the girls noticed a sickening stench that filled the house. Eventually, it would become so bad that Gary's neighbors complained to the police. After several calls, a young patrolman was sent to the house to make inquiries. He left after Gary assured him that the smell was caused by an overcooked roast dinner. Following Sandra's death, Gary's behavior became increasingly bizarre. He urged the girls to inform on each other with the promise of better conditions for those who complied. During this period, the girls devised a plan to attack Gary and escape, but the plan never came to fruition. Jacqueline would later testify that the attack never occurred because Josephina told Gary what they were planning. Convinced that the girls were constantly plotting against him, Gary devised a plan of his own to prevent them from leaving. After cuffing each girl's hand and foot. He hung them from a beam and gagged them. Then, taking several different sizes of screwdrivers, he gouged inside their ears, attempting to deafen them. Gary believed that if they could not hear, they would be unable to hear him coming to prepare for an attack. The only one he didn't touch was Josephina. Over the next few days, Deborah regained her composure and continued to defy Gary's attempts to tame her. As an added incentive to obey, Gary added a new punishment to his already cruel bag of tricks, his own version of electric shock treatment. His method was simple and effective. He stripped the insulation from one end of an electrical extension cord and plugged the other into a socket. Then, turning on the power, he would hold the exposed wires against each of the girls' chains and watched with detached amusement as they wriggled and danced to escape the current. As before, Josephina was exempt from this punishment. As the weeks passed, Gary began to treat Josephina as more of a partner than a hostage, and spent more and more time with her alone. He trusted her so much that on March 18th, when one of the girls acted up, Gary enlisted Josefina's help with the punishment. The shock treatment was again employed with one added feature. Water. Gary drilled air holes into the plywood cover, then had Josephina fill the pit with water. Deborah Dudley, Jacqueline Askins, and Lisa Thomas, still in chains, were then pushed down into the pit before the cover was replaced and weighed down with bags of dirt. As they sat, shivering with cold and fear, the exposed wire was pushed through one of the holes until it briefly touched one of the chains, sending a jolt of electricity surging through all of them. The wire was then pushed into the hole a second time, making direct contact with Deborah Dudley's chain. Absorbing most of the voltage, Deborah screamed and began convulsing uncontrollably before collapsing face down in the water. Seeing their friend fall, Jacqueline and Lisa began screaming until Gary lifted the cover and dragged Deborah out. After determining that she was dead, Gary calmly made sandwiches and told the girls Aren't you glad it wasn't one of you? He then left for a few minutes and returned with a pen and paper. Handing it to Josephina, he ordered her to write the time and date at the top of the page. When she had done so, he made her write a statement detailing how she had assisted him to electrocute Deborah Dudley. He then ordered her to sign it before adding his own signature. Holding up the letter, he then told her, If you ever go to the cops, I can use this as evidence that you killed Debbie. Satisfied that he had her completely under his control, he removed Rivera's chains and told her to go upstairs and change. It was the first time she had been completely dressed in four months. The following day, Gary returned to the basement and, after wrapping Deborah's body in plastic, placed it in the freezer and left. Following Deborah Dudley's death, Josefina became Gary's constant companion, often accompanying him on outings to restaurants and on shopping expeditions. On one such outing, Gary told Rivera that if she was ever caught, he would act as though he was insane, since he knew how to manipulate the testing procedures after years of experience in various institutions. He told her that he had been fooling the authorities for years so that he could qualify for disability payments. However, Gary also seemed to soften after Deborah died, and he began to provide additional comforts for his captives, including mattresses blankets, pillows, and even a television set. Josephina, in her role as trusted confidant, earned the dubious honor of sharing Gary's bed. On one particular trip, they were driving in the countryside outside of New Jersey when Gary stopped the car near a heavily wooded area and remarked that it would be a good place to dispose of Deborah's body. The following night, March 22nd, Gary and Josephina loaded Deborah Dudley's partially frozen body in one of his other vehicles, a Dodge van, and drove back to the area known as the Pine Barrens. While Rivera waited in the vehicle, Gary dumped the body in a grove of trees. Gary told Rivera that he would need to find a replacement for Deborah and suggested that they go out cruising together to find one. Later that night, the pair drove through the streets looking for the new addition. It wasn't long before they spied another African-American prostitute standing on a street corner. Rivera knew the woman, named Agnes Adams, from when they both previously worked in the same strip club. Oddly, Gary also knew Agnes. He was a previous customer of hers and had taken her back to his home on two separate occasions for sex. The first time he had taken her home, a car had been blocking his driveway and he couldn't find a secluded parking spot so he drove her back to the city and paid her $10 for the trouble. The second time he took her home, had sex, and paid her, after which she walked home. Strangely, he had never tried to attack her on either occasion. On this night, however, he had other plans. After negotiating a price for her services, Gary and Josephina drove her back to his house. While Rivera remained in the kitchen, Gary took Agnes upstairs and had sex with her. Shortly after, she found herself stripped, chained, and imprisoned in the basement with the others. To Gary, Rivera may have seemed like a willing participant, but she had other plans and was happy to wait for the right time to implement them. Her chance finally came on March 24th. After days of pleading, she convinced Gary to let her go see her family to say goodbye, since she was going to be with him forever. She sweetened the deal for him by saying she would bring him back a new wife for his collection. Gary, believing Josephina was completely under his control, agreed on the condition that after visiting her family, she would pick up the woman and meet him at a gas station near her house at midnight. Later that evening, Gary dropped her near her house and drove off. Within seconds, Rivera was sprinting towards the apartment that she shared with her boyfriend, a man named Vincent Nelson. When Nelson answered the door, Josefina began blurting out her incredible story. As she told him how she had been taken prisoner, sexually abused, and tortured, Nelson wondered if she had lost her mind. As he tried to calm her down, she continued to describe scenes involving death, dog food, and body parts, until Nelson offered to go to Gary's house and confront him. Scared that her running to Nelson would lead to the other girls being killed, Josephina convinced him to call the police. He reluctantly agreed, still unsure of her story, and made the call from a nearby payphone. Several minutes later, two police officers, John Cannon and David Savage, pulled up alongside them. Again, Josephina repeated her incredible story. Like Nelson, Cannon and Savage also found it hard to believe, until Rivera lifted the bottoms of her jeans and showed them the scars on her ankles where the chains had been. They were convinced and proceeded to the gas station where Gary was waiting in his Cadillac for his trusted captive. As they took out their weapons and approached the car, Gary raised his hands and asked if they were there regarding child support payments. He was told that it was a far more serious matter and placed under arrest. After four months of unspeakable horror, Gary Heinick's reign of terror was finally at an end. And so are we. We'll pick up with part two next week with the discovery of Gary's House of Horrors and the eventual trial. This episode was written and produced by Justin Harvey. If you like this story, please subscribe wherever you are listening to stay up to date on new episodes. If you want to help us grow, please tell a friend about the show. Be sure to follow us on social media and join the Ohio Connection Facebook discussion group to chat about the cases further. There, you can recommend cases you'd like us to cover and may even land a spot to help produce or co-host an episode. If you want to support the show financially, you can become a subscriber or a one-time tipper on our Anchor.fm page, and you'll be listed in the credits of the next episode.